Miami is in a mess, governmentally speaking anyway. Florida's book censorship controversy hits Miami-Dade County, and should Cubans start learning Russian? Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. In the next hour, we'll look at the big ethics cloud that's suddenly hanging over Miami Mayor Francis Suarez and other turmoil facing the city, from its racially gerrymandered district map to the federal trial of its most high-profile commissioner. We'll also examine why a Miami-Dade public school has suddenly removed books from the shelves for elementary students. Does it constitute book banning? And we'll ask whether Russia's footprint is about to get a lot bigger in Cuba. All that coming up right after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. Before we start this week, I want to correct an oversight from our show last week. In our discussion of the Broward School Board's support for clear student backpacks as a school safety and security tool, we did not include a voice from the board itself. We should have. So I want to read a brief statement from board member Alan Zeman. He told us, We favor requiring clear backpacks to keep our students safe. They make it easier to see weapons in students' backpacks, and they're a frequent reminder that we all need to take safety seriously. Our board can't ignore the fact that starting July 1st, Florida will allow permitless concealed weapons. That increases the risk to our students because it is no longer required to have a background check, a permit, or a gun safety course to carry a concealed weapon. There is a public hearing on clear backpacks scheduled for June 12th. I encourage the public to attend and share their thoughts. But I am convinced that this is a positive step for middle school and high school students where the risk is greatest. So to start our show today, we turn to Miami and what we might call the current Miami mess. Right outside our downtown studios here, we can see the giant sweeping arches going up over the new I-395 bridge project. They're supposed to symbolize a new Miami, a city of the future. But all this week, and all this month really, we've been reminded of little except the old Miami, the old way of doing things here. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez is now under an ethics investigation for moonlighting as a paid consultant for a developer who's trying to win permitting favors from the city. A federal judge has told the Miami City Commission, meanwhile, that its new district map was racially gerrymandered and wants it redrawn. Miami Commissioner Joe Carollo's defense in a federal civil trial accusing him of abuse of power has cost Miami taxpayers millions, and the city's attorney is under scrutiny for cronyism involving a local guardianship program. What's your reaction to this magic city morass? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now is WLRN government accountability reporter Joshua Ceballos and Miami Herald government reporter Joey Flachus. Gentlemen, welcome. Hey there, Tim. Thank you, Tim. Joey Flachus, I want to start with you and the excellent investigative work you and your Herald colleagues, Jay Weaver and Sarah Blasky, did uncovering the consulting work, $170,000 worth of consulting work Mayor Suarez had been doing for developer Rishi Kapoor. Kapoor's firm, Location Ventures, has been trying to cut through the permitting red tape 
for a $70 million project in Coconut Grove. Now, you discovered all this in a lawsuit, right? It did start with a lawsuit. Last um, week, we uh, we saw in a lawsuit from the company's f- former CFO that um, there was uh, in a list of alleged financial proprieties, um, um, improprieties by Location Ventures that Mayor Suarez was getting paid a $10,000 a month payment for unknown services, according to this lawsuit. That led us down this road where we started asking questions and we tried to, we, we asked them about the agreement. Um, we ended up uh, contacting uh, sources and we ended up obtaining some documentation from inside the company. Right. Now, Mayor Suarez claims that his consulting work for Kapoor was not related to the Coconut Grove project, right. but you found evidence that it was. That's right. So yeah. at first he says that I'm doing, I'm not doing work related to city business and permitting, right? And then we found internal communications that reference Mayor Suarez pushing along and being called on to help with permitting issues that were stuck for this development. Well, doesn't one message actually say the mayor is going to take care of this? It, it, it references a meeting having occurred between the mayor and the city manager. Those are things that the mayor and city manager have denied to us, and so has the developer Rishi Kapoor. But we've reviewed many pages of internal meeting notes from inside the conversation at Location Ventures that indicates to us that there was uh, a, a, an expectation that the mayor would be called on to help with this stuff. Now, what is the total amount of compensation then that he has received or will be receiving for this consulting work? It's a good question. We know that in, he was paid $30,000 in 2021, and then he was paid for at least uh, 10 months worth of work in 2022. Um, and for some time in this in this year, we, we, ate, we ended up with the total of 170000 based on what we have seen as reporters and our sources have told us. Um, but the mayor has not been forthcoming. He has not provided the contract. He has not uh, answered any detailed questions about and it. And what should he have been disclosing anyway? If he was moonlighting this way? It's a good question. Um, What the mayor is asserting is that he didn't have to disclose this because it comes underneath a state mandated threshold for disclosure and on on the basis of income. We asked him how much money he made to see to verify if that's a if that's a correct thing to do. Um, He didn't answer that question. But um, it's actually pretty surprising even to us reporters in local government that, you know, if if you uh, if you choose to disclose on a five percent um, basis, if you you know your income under five percent does not need to be disclosed. That's what he's asserting. But either way, now Suarez is under a Miami-Dade Ethics Commission investigation, right? That's right. The Ethics Commission um, uh, and actually the state attorney yesterday uh, told us that they're coordinating with the Ethics Commission for a review of these allegations. I'm not sure where that'll go, but um, the fact that the Ethics Commission um, is taking a look at this makes you wonder, you know, where um, where are the boundaries here um, that should be enforced and under our ethics law for someone who is doing business, who is under contract with an entity that is going to seek that same government, that, that mayor's government for permits. Now, are, are other alleged improprieties perhaps involved in this as well, including, for example, the recent VIP tickets that Mayor Suarez received as part of this Formula One event here. Uh, we don't have an indication that the VIP tickets um, um, aspect is something that's caught the attention of um, um, uh, the Ethics Commission, but it certainly is another uh, item where it's a disclosure question, right? Yeah. And we've been talking a lot about with disclosure when it comes to the mayor because he asserts that you know, if he's he is self-disclosing where he needs to, but where's the check on that? And and that's really where the story is revolving around. Where's the check on just trust me, I'm disclosing and, and, and what I'm supposed to under law. Right. But that brings us to what at least I feel is the most important question here, Joey, which is why would Mayor Suarez even have thought that this arrangement was somehow kosher? 
That's a huge question this week. I mean, even in a scenario, you know, for example, where you look at that and you say, if, if, if nobody in his office was aware or if so, nobody in the city was aware, which is something that we've heard from the city manager and other, and other folks in the city that they were not aware of this arrangement, um, why wouldn't this be a self-disclosure situation to avoid the appearance of any impropriety? And, and why would that why would the job be okay that's a great I don't I actually don't even know what the ethics implications are there that aren't already triggered right I mean you, you have to it raises questions it raises a lot of questions. and not only thinking that it's kosher but actually in a more brazen sense going out and participating in a groundbreaking event with this same project it was a striking moment to um to talk to former commissioner ken russell and this project that we're talking about is in coconut grove right. at that groundbreaking um suarez is, was pictured you know shoveling dirt ceremoniously um right next to ken russell and when i asked him did you know that he was a paid consultant for some time uh for the developer and he said no and i think it's a remarkable thing for people around you to not know when you're in that position posing for those pictures All right yeah. So Josh Ceballos, it's it's not just Mayor Suarez who's under scrutiny this week. That's the right. Miami City Commission was just told by a federal judge that its new district's map wasn't exactly ethically drawn up either. In fact, the judge accused the commission of racial gerrymandering and pretty brazen racial gerrymandering at that, right? Right. So basically, this was triggered by a lawsuit brought forth by a number of plaintiffs represented in part by the ACLU of Florida. Right. They said uh, the plaintiffs said the city racially gerrymandered its map by cr creating the districts based on race. And while the judge has not, you know, exactly said that this is absolutely what happened in his order he basically said there's significant evidence that would prove the plaintiff's point that yes this was racially gerrymandered and therefore he ordered the city to toss out its district map and make a new one right and and uh, going back to you know we were talking about the brazenness of mayor suarez here allegedly the brazenness of of the of, of the city commission and actually you know as you point out discussing this and essentially making the case for the ACLU. Yeah, you know, so that's that's the interesting thing is that, you know, a lot of the evidence that the ACLU Florida and, and the attorneys brought out was just transcripts from, from public commission meetings where the commissioners were saying, yes, we want um, three Hispanic districts, one black district, and one white, or they called it Anglo, one Anglo district, and that District 5 needed to stay black, uh, District uh, 1, 3, and 4 needed to stay Hispanic, and 2 needed to be white. And they said that out loud, and the judge said there's plenty of evidence in the record from the commissioner's mouths that show that they were talking about race. So not even trying to hide it. No. Then really. So what's happening now, and how will the new map be different, especially less racially based, do you think? So the, the judge has ordered the city and the plaintiffs to go to mediation, and the city has to redraw its maps. The ACLU of Florida and the plaintiffs have brought forward some uh, options. They've sent the city publicly two optional maps. They said, hey, if you guys want to go with these, these are pretty good. And um, they're less race-based, more population-based, and they keep neighborhoods together. The The districts are much more compact, right. and they still um, uh, they go along with the Constitution requirements. Right, so it make, makes more sense in terms of neighborhood boundaries and things right, like, like that. Right, like Coconut Grove would be in one district rather than three, right. as it is right Instead now. Instead of just hacking everything up to, to, to meet some sort of racial... Right, okay, right. No, that, that, that makes sense. Yeah. I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about all the latest Miami government scandals. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Josh, sticking with the Miami Commission here for a second, its most high-profile member, Joe Corroyo, is currently embroiled in a federal civil trial where he's accused of using his authority to take personal revenge on local business owners he doesn't like. 
Where does the trial stand right now? Right. So the trial has been going on almost two months now, but it's in the, the ending stages. It's expected to end fairly soon. Um, the, the judge has already asked the the two parties to come with jury instructions to send to the jury. However, uh, Joe Carollo's defense is in a really rough position after a scandal where right. one of one of his attorneys took a photo in the courtroom um, of the of the opposing party of the opposing counsel. And that's not allowed. You cannot yeah. take and photos. The judge got really mad, about really this mad and, and basically told their attorneys, you know, we're going to do sanctions like we have. I, I should sanction you for what you just did. And now his defense attorneys are not allowed to bring their phones into federal court in the Southern District of Florida indefinitely. Right. And as I mentioned, the Carollo's defense is costing Miami taxpayers. Uh, the, so the most recent estimates from uh, my colleagues in, in local media said it was $2 million before trial even started, just in preparation for the trial. We don't know how much it's cost during the trial. And it's it's just important to note also that the judge recently said mm-hmm. um, the, the defenses that Joe Carollo's team has brought up are not actual legal affirmative defenses. So they're in a really tough spot right now. And Josh, I also want to give a shout out to the excellent investigative work you and our WLRN colleague Danny Rivero have done looking into another alleged conflict of interest, this one involving Miami City Attorney Victoria Mendez and the Miami-Dade County Guardianship Program. Uh, just briefly, where do things stand there? Yeah, so things are currently in a holding position. I would say the the Miami-Dade Commission on Ethics uh, I know. I'm sorry. The uh, Miami-Dade Office of the Inspector General, different body, mm-hmm. is currently investigating the guardianship program's real estate transactions after our reporting. And I've reached out to them recently, and they said that that investigation investigation is still ongoing, mm-hmm. and um, there's no word on how that's going yet. And um, Victoria Mendez has not said too much on the record about what's going on there. Okay. And as if all this alleged corruption wasn't bad enough, this week a former aide, Demer Suarez, Rene Pedrosa, pleaded guilty to receiving child pornography. Joey Flachus, at this point, can Francis Suarez's presidential aspirations really be taken seriously anymore? And really, should they have been taken seriously even before this? Well, I can tell you that um, a Fox News poll from March had him at zero percent. Um, and it's not exactly a small field. And there's a couple of big heavyweights <laughs> that, that are Florida yeah. heavyweights, right? So yeah. um, it really makes you wonder um, what he's, where his head is at on this. And with the news in the past couple of weeks, um, you know, he hasn't really he hasn't stopped his uh, his media train. He, um, he definitely still goes on um, uh, national television. He was actually asked about some of this conflict stuff on Face the Nation on Sunday morning. And mm-hmm. he was asked straight up if he would release his tax returns. He said yes. Um, and he also said he would disclose every job um, that he has, which doesn't isn't reflected in his actions since then. <laughs> but, but, so. but but even before all of this, I mean, you know, the 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 the, the, the crypto you know, currency scheme went bust. Right. Um, there a lot of things just didn't didn't seem to be in favor of of promoting his presidential aspirations. Does this pretty much put a nail in that coffin? I think if you asked Republicans around the state of Florida, you know, they would probably be they would be given a lot of pause if you kind of run down, you know, the 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 different items that you know Suarez has been. Um, involved with not even just the like you said the cryptocurrency kind of enthusiasm and the time we're at in terms of crypto I mean just two Saturdays ago he was still he was hosting a Bitcoin uh, event he was speaking at the Bitcoin conference here in Miami and, and and bullish about it and that's a smaller that's a smaller group of people than it used to be and it's quite it's right. it, it's a lot harder for people to get their heads around why he's doing this but stuff. a lot of the attention the presidential attention that came to him has to do with this idea that he brought tech 
to Miami, that he was really going to turn Miami to sort of Silicon Beach. Is that, should we say that's really the reason why he was looked upon this way? A lot of his um, his publicity has been around, um, yes, the build, the building up of a Miami tech economy. Um, and it's, he likes to source it to like his, how can I help tweet? When he sent that, he still, he still tweets a lot with the people right. in the tech community online. And um, certainly there, it has been growth. Um, that can't be taken away, but um, everything, all all things considered here for, for the mayor, um, we're looking at a really crucial month, and he would have to announce and start raising money and get on a debate stage in August. He's admitted that himself. We're not sure, you know, what's going to happen here because that has to start soon if right. it happens at all. Finally, Joey, I, I, I also want to ask you in, in a bigger picture here. Why is it so hard for Miami government to clean up its act? I, I mean, we should remember that Suarez's father, former Miami mayor Xavier Suarez, himself was part of a major corruption scandal here in the 1990s, one of the biggest in the city's history. Why is it so hard for Miami to fix this? That question reminds me of something that actually Mayor Suarez said during his state of speech this year, which is that that he's always felt that Miami has a sort of the city of Miami, as in the city government, city hall has a sort of, you know, us against them mentality, us against the world mentality. And it made me wonder why, why does that, why does that exist? Where does that come from? Uh And I'm thinking about the history that you're referring to now. I'm thinking about some of the community conversation that I've heard in the past couple days about, you know, it, you know, the, the operation of government being more about who you know. Instead of mm-hmm. you know the merit of your application, the merit of what you're doing, it's 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 about you know can I take a shortcut? Do I know somebody here? Can I get a hook up there? And and that being manifested in what these allegations are, just too much incestuousness then maybe yeah, in, could in, be. in the yeah. political culture here, right, right, and and a sort of defense of that, right, a sort of defense of like uh, maybe there's a tribalism about it, you know, if I'm if I'm in this world and I'm doing this, or if I'm a member of this community, I'm defending my people, and so uh, you know even if there are and, and that's just, you know, I'm kind of just spitting, spitballing, no, no, no. right? It, you know? it makes sense. I mean, the li- as we were talking before, the lines right. get blurred in, in, inside their heads because because of this right. this culture. We have an active real estate industry, for example. Ah, and, yeah. and yeah, and real estate um, is is a big player in politics. They're funding campaigns and, and people who are involved in real estate end up running for office. And that, that makes you wonder, like, who do you know? Who are you talking to? Who are you doing business with right. um, when you're actually trying to act in a public capacity? Right. Joey Flachus covers Miami government for the Miami Herald. Joshua Ceballos does the same for WLRN. Gentlemen, many thanks. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Still to come, did a Miami school censor books? This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Book banning has become a big fear in Florida, and this week that fear visited South Florida. A Miami-Dade County public K-8 school, the Bob Graham Education Center in Miami Lakes, removed four books from its elementary school shelves and shifted them to the middle school shelves. They did this in response to one parent's complaint that the books were not appropriate for K-8 through age students. One of the books is a poem, The Hill We Climb, by Amanda Gorman. You'll recall Gorman read it at President Biden's inauguration two years ago. Another is a tribute to black poet Langston Hughes. Another is titled The ABCs of Black History. And the fourth is a book about kids in Cuba. Gorman tweeted this week that she felt, quote, gutted 
by the school's decision to remove the hill we climb from elementary reading. And it turns out the parent who issued the complaint reportedly has links to far-right extremist groups. But does this really constitute book banning? Is it actual book censorship or... Is it reasonable book restriction based on an assessment of what ages are appropriate for what books? Which do you consider it to be? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Joining me now is WLRN education reporter Kate Payne and Reagan Miller of the Florida Freedom to Read Project. She joins us from St. Petersburg. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Kate, thank you. Kate Payne, for proper context, I think we have to start with what we're now learning about the parent who lodged the complaint. Her name is Daly Salinas, and it turns out she's got quite a history with right-wing extremist groups like the Proud Boys, no? So the, the reporting on those connections came from the Miami Against Fascism Twitter account. Uh, there's been further reporting by the Daily Beast. Daily Beast, right. I have not been able to reach Salinas uh, or to independently confirm uh, because her, her social media profiles have been taken down. But the reporting there is is that she's uh, posted a series of right-wing memes, that there are photos showing her with members of Moms for Liberty at protest with the Proud Boys, right. including standing right next to Enrique Tarrio, the former head of the Proud Boys. And in an interview with the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, Salinas did apologize for promoting anti-Semitic content on social media. With, with a group called Elders of Zion. Yeah, yeah a, a uh, Very long-standing anti-Semitic, anti-Semitic yeah. Right. yeah. Um, Salinas is also one of the women who disrupted a Miami-Dade uh, school board meeting a few months back over discussions Which about... Which you reported on. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that was during discussions about the sex education curriculum. She was protesting that curriculum and and helped bring that meeting to a standstill and was escorted out by police. Right. Now, all that matters when we look at the content she was objecting to. It, it would seem any objective reading of The Hill We Climb, for example, shows nothing you'd consider political, quote, indoctrination, as, as Salinas asserted. But let's let our listeners decide for themselves. Here's Amanda Gorman reading that passage at Biden's inauguration. Wade, we've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace, and the norms and notions of what just is isn't always just is. And yet the dawn is ours before we knew it. Somehow we do it. Somehow we've weathered and witnessed a nation that isn't broken but simply unfinished. We So Kate, does Gorman have a point when she argues that keeping her poem away from elementary school students is a form of book banning? Or was the Bob Graham Education Center Committee that made that decision simply making a reasonable call that the poem is, say, above the heads of elementary age kids? So some background on the decision. It was a local decision made by at the school, right. made by a committee of teachers, media specialists, the school principal, and it only applies to that one school. Um, and again, moving those books to, to the middle school section of the library. 
outside publishers and reviewers have rated Gorman's poem at a fifth grade reading level. Okay, that's, um, that's good context to know. Yeah, Sure, and, and that it's also appropriate for a general audience. One of the other books uh, that was targeted, the ABCs of Black History, I've seen different ratings, um, but some are, are for kids as young as two years old, okay. um, also for ages five and up. Uh, so we would think very much appropriate for an elementary school audience. Um, the district has said that any child at the school can still access these books if they're at a middle school reading level, mm-hmm. um, and that those conversations would happen informally, you know, between the student, the librarian, their teacher, of just, you know, are, are, are you up for, for the content of this book? Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's, it's important to say, certainly with, with Amanda Gorman's poem, I mean, this is essentially a historical document, uh, part of the, the mm-hmm. inauguration of a United States president. And in the context of of Salinas's claims, um, her complaint that it was indoctrination, that's absolutely part of this context. Yeah. Now, you asked Florida Education Commissioner Manny Diaz about that, and here's his take. A parent has the right to make a complaint, but the, the process was put into effect, and it worked where, the, where they deemed the proper placement of the books, and students still have access to it at the right level. Now, in a statement, Bob Graham Education Center administrators insist that no book banning has taken place, just age-appropriate designation of books, as you, as you were pointing out, Kate. But Reagan Miller of, of the Florida Freedom to Read Project, how should we interpret this? This parent, uh, Daly Salinas, wanted books like Gorman's removed from the school entirely. The school committee rendered a compromise by making the books available only to middle school students, as we've, as we've mentioned. But is that itself a form of censorship, Reagan, particularly when we consider that these books may well be appropriate for elementary kids after all? Yes, I absolutely believe that this is a form of censorship. My children are both in a K through eight. I have an elementary schooler and a middle schooler. And, you know, my elementary schooler is very inquisitive and he would love to be able to go access a book like this. Um, so if he does not have the ability to get that book without going, you know, without jumping through hoops and calling me or getting extra special permission, then yes, you are removing access from children. Mm -hmm. And I will point out Love to Langston and the ABCs of Black History are both written for elementary school students. And so that is certainly removing access from the age that it, from the audience that it was intended. Mm-hmm. Now, the other three books the school removed from elementary shelves do touch on the hot button issues of race and Cuba, always a hot button issue, obviously, in this community. But again, it seems really questionable that they traumatize or indoctrinate a second grader. So, Reagan, given this parent's right wing political agenda, apparently, does the school now risk looking as though it caved to that agenda? Absolutely. I mean, if I was a parent at that school, why, like any other parent, were they notified? I don't believe that they were. So they're saying that the process worked based on one parent complaining and then, you know, they compromised, gave her her way. But how many students lost access and, and were these parents notified? And what was the process for the parents who had their students access removed to appeal this? Because I I don't see this. So I don't see how this is a working process. And honestly, if we hadn't asked the question, would anybody know this? And because we found this through public records request. 
you know, why aren't we talking about this? Why aren't we coming to some kind of agreement that we need, you know, yeah. we, we can all say what we want our children to read. Right, and, and, and we're gonna get to that. I'm Tim Paget. this is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're discussing this week's book uproar at a Miami-Dade school. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Now, Kate Payne, um, the Miami-Dade School District emphasizes, as, as, as you pointed out earlier, mm -hmm. that there is a loophole in this arrangement that makes it less restrictive. Um, did, did that make sense to you, what, what the school was doing? Yeah, so my, again, my understanding from the district is that, you know, say if a fourth grader wants to check out one of these books, that it would be, you know, a conversation with the media specialist, with the librarian, um, who probably, you know, hopefully has, has good knowledge of, of the students' reading levels. And, right, and but can just... the, that fourth grader has uh -huh. to show that he or she can read is is reading at a middle school level. That's my understanding. Yeah, and that that would happen, you know, through through informal conversations of of just, you know, are are you up for this? Maybe the teacher would be consulted of, you know, where where do you think their their reading comprehension level is? Okay. But yeah, that that it would be an additional conversation, an additional step to have access to this book, right. these books. Now now going back to to the point uh, Reagan was sort of touching on there earlier, we have Roseanne from Deerfield Beach. And she asks a very important question. How can the, this decision be made on the basis of just one parent's complaint? Roseanne, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. You're on the air. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm hearing a lot about uh, the, our, the education is being more and more restricted based on a very small population. And it's troubling to think that a small amount of people have so much control over what the kids are learning Education means covering all the bases. It's not just the stuff we like. It's not just the stuff we're comfortable with. But it, it encompasses more than that. And it, it's troubling to think that it can be so easily controlled by one person caused all of this. And it's, it's upsetting. Right. Thank you very much, Roseanne. Uh, Reagan Miller, I think she raises probably one of, if not the most important questions, as you touched on earlier, why was only one parent allowed to have this kind of sway? Um, shouldn't there be some mechanism in place that allows for a broader range of, of parent input? There should be, yes. But we have very vague laws and we have a Department of Education that has not clarified you know, how to tackle this. And we have educators that are, you know, fearful they're erring on the side of caution as is written in that media specialist training. And so that's what they're doing. They're erring on the side of caution so that they don't get in trouble or get targeted. Mm -hmm. But what, what, for example, does the Florida Freedom to Read Project recommend uh, be, be put in place for these kinds of situations? I mean, we want transparency. The parents, you know, the parents at the school should have been notified that there was a challenge. The parents, um, you know, all the other parents of the school should have had a seat at the table. They should have been able to voice their opinion. Um, if this parent didn't want their child to have access, why is there simply not an opt-out policy for that parent? Because what we're seeing over and over again is that when people, when they ask you to opt, you know, to uh, if they if you want to opt out to the to the library, 99% of parents are giving their children access to the library. This is this is not an issue that parents are having. We trust the media specialists and we trust our educators. And we know that they have vetted these books and, you know, we're confident with our children learning and coming home and talking to us at the end of the day. 
Right. Now, Kate Payne, as an education reporter, you obviously, you know, I, I'm sure you have the feeling that we're going to be seeing cases like this more, uh, you know, down, down the road. What are you hearing about what perhaps could sort of mechanisms could be put in place to handle these kinds of situations? Well, so just to speak to this process, this is what's laid out in state law and local policy, that a single parent, that a single resident can make these complaints, whether it's informal or formal. There are forms in place um, to, to move through this process, form a committee, you know, review the books and, and make a decision. Um, but something that is not articulated in state law or local policy, at least in Miami-Dade, is a process for a parent to reverse a decision like this. It's not clear, speaking with with the district, it's not clear, you know, what might happen if a parent at the school um, wanted to try and do that, wanted to try and overturn this. Um, maybe that will change, um, mm. but you know, this this process of removal is, or you know, well, reshelving yeah, l- l- is. Let me ask both of you: Should this be a matter of mathematics? I mean, if I've got one parent like Daisy Salinas saying, "No, no, I I think this book is indoctrination," but I've got seventy five other parents who are saying, "No, I I want my elementary school kids to have access to this to this book." Who should win out? Reagan. I think the 75 other parents, I think that is erring on the side of caution. Give people access. And if you want to restrict your kid, you have always had rights to do that. Do you think that makes sense, for example, Kate, to the members of the Miami-Dade County School Board? I think it depends on who you ask. Um, But certainly these are... Right now, these are the hard decisions that media specialists are making, that teachers are making, of if they, you know, are the unlucky person to get scrutiny, whether it's state-level scrutiny, national scrutiny. uh, We know that that is a risk in this media environment um, where activists, you know, may target people who they don't agree with, expose their personal information, their address, um, things like that. These are some of the some of the questions that media specialists are and teachers are weighing as they're making these decisions. Now, just in the last minute we have here, I also want to point out that this is not new to Miami-Dade County. In the past, I remember 20 years ago when I started covering uh, things here, uh, the Miami-Dade County School Board would ban a book about Cuba, for example, for kids, if it felt that that book was too positive about Cuba, if it wasn't, if it didn't show Cuba in a negative enough light. So we've got a history here. Um, Reagan Miller, do you uh, do you think that 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 history is sort of rearing its head again uh, here in, in Miami, if not in the rest of the state? Uh, it, it, it definitely is. You know, limiting access to information is is very popular right now. So it is rearing its head again. All right. Reagan Miller is with the Florida Freedom to Read Project. Kate Payne covers education for WLRN. Thanks very much to both of you for helping us understand this better. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Still to come, Cuba, Russia, Miami, and Los Banban. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Last week, Cuba's government, communist government hosted a business conference for Russian officials and investors. But to a lot of Cuba experts, it felt more like a bailout for a failed regime. 
Cuba and Russia signed a raft of deals that suddenly make Russia look like a major stakeholder in the island, especially in sectors like sugar. Cuba even handed Russian investors unprecedented 30-year land leases. The Cuban regime hopes that Vladimir Putin's regime will rescue Cuba from its worst economic collapse in 30 years. The country's in especially desperate need of basics like food and fuel. But what would this much larger Russian footprint in Cuba mean for U.S. policy there? And how should the Cuban exile community here respond? A Cuban-American politician is taking credit, for example, for getting a Miami Beach performance by the Cuban band Los Bonbon canceled. Is that really an effective strategy for changing Cuba? What do you think the deepening ties between Cuba and Russia mean? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or you can tweet us at WLRN. With me now is my colleague, Nora Gomez-Torres, who covers everything Cuba for the Miami Herald. Nora, thanks for coming in. Thank you for inviting me, Tim. What struck you the most, Nora, about the deals Cuba made with Russia? I mean, is it an exaggeration to suggest we're going back to the days when Cuba felt like a colony of the Soviet Union? Well, it's it's been in, uh, really interesting that you're using that word because uh, that's how Cubans uh, felt and uh, they're saying that in, in social media. I mean, yeah, we're not anywhere near the multi-billion subsidies um, Cuba uh, received during the Soviet times, uh, but right. but the, the announcements are indeed striking, especially um, this um, opportunity of, uh, for Russian companies to lease land for 30 years. Right. Uh, we we have uh, little details. We don't know if this is this if this would be for farming, most likely for maybe like building manufacture manufacturing facilities. We still don't know. But there was also like another. Um, intriguing and concerning uh, announcement, which is that Cuban, um, that Russian banks have actually seek authorization to open subsidiaries in Cuba. And, and that is, you know, concerning for, you know, uh, evasion of financial sanctions, uh -huh. um, both for Cuba and for Russia right now. So you, you feel that if, if Russian banks were to open these these uh, branches or subsidiaries, et cetera, in Cuba, this provides Cuba with, with, with a more effective way of circumventing, for example, the U.S. economic embargo against it? Yeah, for sure. But uh, not also not also Cuba, but but Russia. And, and you know, there's an increased interest and uh -huh, there's increased, uh, you know, pressure on the Russian government to cut, you know, financial, their 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 money flowing and uh, the possibility to use that money for its invasion of Ukraine. So that was um, good point. Good that, point. That, that caught the attention of, of, you know, observers. Right. And I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, the Ukraine invasion uh, factor here, because uh, I, a lot of Cuban social media, uh, particularly uh, groups like Catorce Media, were really, really uh, stunned, they said, when they, they heard uh, Cuban President Miguel Diaz-Canel during that visit by the Russians last week, essentially say we unconditionally support uh, Russia, Russia's, as he called it, Russia's confrontation with the West, which was just sort of, you know, a, a, an opaque way of saying we support Russia's invasion of Ukraine. No. 
Yes, and, and he has been very vocal in supporting Russia and, and the, how they call it the special operations in Ukraine. And, right. and remember, also, like the country has uh, failed to condemn the invasion. They have abstained at the, um, at the United Nations boats condemning Russia and, uh, and in other boats and in international organizations, more recently at the World Health Organization. Uh, interestingly enough, um, I'm, I'm working on a story today about um, Belarus offering military training to to cuba um which we know also that right. you know belarus is uh has become um you know like another ground for um russian troops to to launch uh their invasion and that there's gonna there's news about tactical nuclear weapons moving to belarus so yeah I've, I've also seen reports that cubans who are living in russia right now they're being offered a chance of russian citizenship if they if they join the russian military no yes yes i saw those reports i'm i'm, I'm writing about them uh actually they're saying that this already happened that these migrants are already on their way to ukraine um because you know putting sign a um, vladimir, vladimir putin sign um a decree actually granting uh, migrants living yeah. in russia basically express citizenship if they sign a one-year contract with the army and go to fighting right. ukraine so i mean that's just really a sign of how bad things are in cuba that you, you, right. you'd, you'd rather you'd rather join the russian military in in this in this uh in this very uh, awful invasion of ukraine rather than live in cuba um, but a big question, Nora, is will all of this, do you think, really help rescue Cuba from its economic disaster, all of this new Russian uh, business involvement? I, I think it would buy them more time and um, definitely can, you know, provide them uh, with resources to survive. But no, I, I mean, uh, Cuba's central plan economy doesn't work, doesn't produce anything. And they have been very slow in rolling out. Um, regulations to allow, you know, the expansion of the private sector. The private sector, sector right. Mm -hmm. if, if they don't open up uh, the country really to foreign investment, really open up. Uh, and, and for, you know, like Cubans producing the island, um, no, this this was only this will only buy them some. Right. Right. And, 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 and as you just pointed out, the ball is really in Cuba's court. Um, be, because the, the U.S. has approved investment in companies in, in the private sector. Um, but, uh, but, but Cuba, as you point out, is, is not providing regulations for, the, for how that investment uh, can be received and used on the island, correct? Or have we lost, Nora? Well, it, it seems that we may have lost her. And she, we don't know if she's still with us or not the travails of, of Zoom technology. But I'll, one of the things, the other question uh, that I wanted to ask Nora was how worried should the U.S. and the Biden administration be about Russia deepening its presence in Cuba this way? And we'll, we'll try to get Nora back. But in the meantime, I'm Tim Paget. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about Cuba, Russia, and Miami. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Now, again, I was going back to the, that point about how worried should the U.S. and the Biden administration be about Russia deepening its presence in Cuba this way. And one of the things that, that 
that I wanted to bring up about this was uh, the, the policy discussion here that's involved. Some might argue that the U.S. should now go back to more engagement with Cuba as a way to confront this Russian expansion on the island. Others would say no. The fact that Cuba is desperate enough to invite Russia in this way just shows how weak the communist regime's position is. And so the thinking goes, the U.S. should just keep the pressure on. Um, now, I, I think, you know, both arguments seem to have uh, valid points. And if, if you've got an opinion about this, please call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. We do have Nora Gomez-Torres back with us. So, Nora, let me, let me repeat that question uh, that I was asking about, you know, the Cuban policy discussion that's involved here become of all of this. As I said, some might argue that the U.S. should now go back to more engagement with Cuba as a way to confront this Russian expansion on the island. Others would say no. The fact that Cuba is desperate enough to invite Russia in this way just shows how weak the communist regime's position is. And so the U.S. should just keep up the pressure, just keep turning the screws. Which approach do you think makes more sense at this point? Yeah, thank you for having me back. Um, I have heard arguments for both positions. And actually, I think the Biden administration is actually trying to do both at the same time, which is really difficult. And, you know, I don't I don't think um, they're going on the on in the direction of expanding, you know, dramatically expanding relations. Mm -hmm. and engagement with Cuba, as we've seen under the Obama administration. But at the same time, they're quite concerned about the humanitarian crisis on the island. Right. And they're also trying to actually help the private sector to expand as a way, you know, as a buffer mm -hmm. um, to counter, you know, like this foreign influence on the island and to help, you know, Cubans living on, on in Cuba. Um, and, and it is. It is quite. <laughs> no, it's a it's a re, it's a real dilemma because the engagement yeah. argument, critics would say, neglects the fact that the Cuban regime's repression has gotten worse of late, including the thousand political prisoners now serving twenty years or more for merely protesting against the government two years ago, right? But but the pressure argument, their critics say, neglects the fact that it risks making things more miserable economically for ordinary Cubans on the island, right? Yeah, exactly. Yes, it, th that's actually the the conversation that is happening right now in, the, in within the administration. I, you know, what I know is that the administration is definitely working on some uh, new regulations to help the private sector, and um, you know, trying to. And I think the European Union, you know, the head of the, you know, the European Union's diplomacy is actually today in Havana. Mm -hmm. um, they are also. You know, heading to the same direction, trying to support the private sector, which they see right now as the only force that could, you know, right. help uh, Cuba's economy um, to recover and, and help the people on the island. Right. And I think it's important that we ask the, the Cuban community here uh, how it can help in, 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 in that effort. We've got Francisco on the line. From here in Miami, uh, he believes that U.S. policy needs to change. Francisco, you're you're on the air. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Thank you, thank you. No, I, I was saying that uh, I've been in Miami. I came when I was 14 years old. I'm 72. I'm getting uh, Social Security, Medicare, and I've been listening 
do the same thing during those years about keep the pressure because they're going to change over there and it hasn't worked. To me, if the United States will open up and go into Cuba, then the Russians will not have a, any space there because the people in, in Cuba, they, they rather uh, have, uh, you know, they love more the American way than the Russian. So it's up to the Cuban community who elect people who are living of that policy and they, uh, they, they get elected and they get elected again under the same theme of, uh, you know, we have to keep the embargo, we have to keep pressure, and it hasn't worked. Right. I, I, well, I think we need, we need a, new, a new, new thing to change that, that problem in Cuba. Nora, thank you very much, Francisco. Nora, just in the 30 seconds we have left, do you think that the, the Cuban community here is, is having, uh, entertaining those same kind of questions that Francisco just expressed? Yes, and definitely, actually, groups in the, within the Cuban-American community are the ones pushing the Biden administration for, uh, you know, expanding their support to the Cuban people and the private sector. Right. Um, it, it is quite tough because at the same time, mm-hmm. it, as, as you mentioned, um, the Cuban government um, cracked down on, right. on you know, protesters. Exactly. Has, has definitely, yeah. you know, made very difficult for the mm-hmm. U.S. government to do anything. Right, Nora. Nora, I'm sorry, we're going to have to leave it there. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, but thank you, Nora Gomez Torres covers Cuba for Miami Herald. Many thanks, Nora. Thank you, Tim. And finally, on the roundup. A new drama at the Colony Theater on Miami Beach pays tribute to Haitians who've created art against impossible odds during episodes like the Duvalier dictatorship. WLRN's Wilkem Brutus tells us more about the play called Create Dangerously. A new play chronicles historical Haitian figures, artists at work in the face of execution. Liliana Blaine Cruz is the playwright and director of Create Dangerously, a drama based on Edwige Dantica's book of essays of the same name. Blaine Cruz says the play honors Haiti's spirit of survival. We read about people who've done brave things, but that's the amazing part of the theater. It makes them flesh and blood, right? We remember that they were real human beings, you know, and not just ideas. The Haitian author Dantica says the play explores the themes of censorship, an artist's sense of social responsibility, and black joy in moments of despair and resistance. There's music, there's dance, there's a celebration of the arts, visual arts. It honors struggle, but it also honors beauty and certainly joy. The show at the Colony Theater on Miami Beach runs through May 28th. I'm Wilkin Brutus in Palm Beach County. That will do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Amy Amy Sanchez. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our director of enterprise journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's vice president of news. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Gracias. Messi. Obrigado. WLRN Public Media.